Thank you very much. Well, uh, good morning. It, is, it really is a great pleasure to be here with you today. And um, can I just say, I've received such a fantastic and warm welcome. I think everybody I've spoken to has just been encouraging and thanked me for being here. And uh, I've got to say, I feel really blessed. So thank you, for, thank you for having me. It's unfortunate I couldn't have been here under better circumstances. So uh, Dan, who was supposed to be here bringing God words to you today, is actually... Um, uh, sort of DNV, and I won't go into the details of that, but he's not, uh, not feeling too great. So let's pray for him, pray that he recovers soon, and uh, yeah, hopefully he'll be back with you next week. So I'll tell you a little bit about myself. So my name is Matt. Uh, I'm married to my wife, Hannah. I've got two daughters, Evie and Kaylee. Um, some, of you, some of you will know me well. Some of you perhaps won't know us. Um, you may well have heard of my daughter, Evie. So a lot of you uh, know uh, over the last kind of eight months, she had a brain tumor, and it was really bad, and all sorts of things happened, and uh, you were praying for us and standing with us, and, and I'm pleased to say that she's made a miraculous recovery, and as far as we can tell, is completely well. So I really value your prayers and you standing with us in that, so thank you. Um, just a little fun fact about me for people that, don't, people that don't know me. So probably at least once a month, somebody will come up to me and say, do you know that you look like James Corden? <laughs> and... Uh, to which I will say, yes, you are not the first person that has told me that. So, uh, yeah, I used to work with a guy who used to call me Smithy. You can call me Matt, you can call me Smithy, you can call me Painter, whatever you like. So, great to be here. So, we're continuing our series in the book of Daniel. So, if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to Daniel chapter 9. And we're going to start by reading the introduction and then giving some pause to the context as to what God would say to us this morning. So if you've got it in your Bibles, we're going to read verses 1 and 2, which says this. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Medivite descendant, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. When we pick up the story here in Daniel 9, he and the people of Israel had been in exile for almost 70 years. They'd experienced extreme persecution, the desolation of their people, and utter defeat. They'd been dragged from their homes by the Babylonian king to live as foreigners in a foreign land. In this time, they'd seen the Babylonian empire rise to its peak of dominance, but now Darius, a Persian, is king, having defeated the Babylonians. Now, what Darius is most famous for, we learned a few weeks ago, is where his own leaders trick him into throwing Daniel into a lion's den. And that's because Daniel refused to bow to Darius and acknowledge him as some sort of God. And Darius, in uh, Daniel 6, verse 16, says this, May the God whom you continually serve rescue you. So this is what he says to Daniel just before he throws him into the lion's den. When Daniel emerges alive the next day from the lion's den, it is Darius, the Persian king, who proclaims that all people in all the Persian empire must fear and revere the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, for his kingdom will not be destroyed, and his dominion will never end. Now how different would it be if across our nation and across some of the churches in the UK that we could demonstrate this same level of faithfulness that Daniel has demonstrated? That at the very end of our days, through all the challenges and difficulties that we go through in life, that the churches across Bournemouth and Paul and our nations and the, and, and the whole earth could demonstrate faithfulness and obedience to Christ. Faithfulness to a God who loves them, to a God who has set out his rescue plan, and to a God who one day will call us all home. Would that not make the church a better place? 
When Daniel demonstrated his faithfulness after a lifetime of captivity, the government declared God's kingdom. Now, it might seem that in our current political and social climate that we could not be further away from a moment like King Darius had, that we could not be further away from our government declaring the glory of God. But actually, God is calling us and his people to be faithful servants, even in the midst of exile. And there's a lot that we can learn from Daniel. Over the previous weeks, we've learned how to live faithfully, how to stand against opposition and persecution. But today, we're going to look at how we can pray. And uh, if you've got your Bibles, why don't you turn to, uh, also read from verses 3 down to verses 19. So it says, I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and, and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commandments and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. We and our kings and our princes and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we have sinned against you. Lord, the Lord our God is merciful and forgiving. Even though we have rebelled against him, we have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written about in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the, this disaster on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servants. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We did not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. And what we read about here is Daniel praying for a desolate people, a people who are living under the consequences and judgment of their sin. It says in verse 16, it says, Our sins and our iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, the ESV translates this as a byword. And uh, perhaps to give you an example of that in our current culture would be the way people use Jesus Christ. They go, oh, Jesus Christ, as it's some sort of like flippant curse word. And that is, that is what the people of God had become. 
when Daniel talks about um, the people disobeying the law of Moses and reaping the consequences of their sin, he's quoting Deuteronomy. And it says this in Deuteronomy, it says, The Lord will drive you and the king you set over you to a nation unknown to you or your ancestors. There you will worship other gods, gods of wood and stone. You will become a thing of horror, a byword, and an object of ridicule among all the peoples where the Lord will drive you. The people had sinned and worshipped false gods and as a result had become exiles in a foreign land. But not only that, they'd become a thing of ridicule and become a byword. Now we too, as believers today, we are living as exiles in a foreign land. We see that actually as God's people, our true people are God's people. No matter where we are in the world, believers, the church, are God's people. And actually our true home is with Christ. So I was, I was uh, born and bred in the UK. I was actually born in Paul Hospital. So I probably got as much right as anyone to say, you know, this is my, this is my town. I have every right to be here. This is my people. But actually, that is secondary to knowing that we are the people of God and that our true home is with Christ. So like Daniel and his people, Christianity today has become a byword or a thing of scorn. You tell someone that you're a Christian, that you love Jesus, and they look at you like there is something wrong with you, almost look at you with horror. Can't believe it. One of those annoying Christians. And actually, this is something that we shouldn't be surprised about. In 2 Corinthians, it talks about, as believers, that the reaction that we will receive from non-believers is one of two things. That one, that we will be the aroma of Christ, that we will be this beautiful fragrance of life and goodness, and that somehow through us they will see Jesus himself, they'll see and smell that goodness. And to the other, we are the fragrance of death. Now, I don't know if you've ever smelled anything that has died before, um, but I can tell you that it is not particularly nice. So a few years ago, I used to work for NatWest Bank in Parkstone up the road, and uh, it was a really hot summer's weekend, and we came in on a Monday morning, and we whacked on all the air conditioning, and within a few minutes, this rancid smell filled the entire place. Like, it was so bad that you felt like you were almost going to be sick. It was kind of thick, and you could sort of taste it in the air. And uh, I think we even had to close the branch early, because it was just, like, people would walk in and they'd leave. It was that bad. And um, it turned out that a rat had died in the ventilation system. And so when I went in and switched on all the air conditioning, I shared that lovely smell around. <laughs> and uh, so I can tell you, the smell of death is not very nice. But actually, as believers, sometimes this is the reaction that we get from people. It's almost like this sort of bad smell. But there, there is two reasons that we can have this reaction. One is because of sin and compromise being hypocritical or judgmental in how we live and what we say. You know, much like Daniel's people who had sinned and compromised. We've seen churches across the UK that have compromised and bowed to the culture of our age. You know, in some cases, these churches are now struggling and they are empty. You know, there's these beautiful kind of old church buildings that are just museums telling us of a story of a once faithful people of God that now doesn't exist. The other reason that we can be um, an object of scorn or ridicule is because of the exact opposite. It's where churches passionately love Jesus and his church and boldly live out their faith in a public way. Because of this bold, public, faithful living, the church naturally rubs up and clashes against our culture and is met with opposition as a result. Uh, it says this in 1 Peter 2. It says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits. 
You know, if we are to be exiles, if we are to be an object of scorn, let it be because we are a faithful people that love Jesus and love his church and boldly live out our faith in an uncompromising way. So whatever the reason for our exile and for the exile of that of the churches across the UK, Daniel teaches us how we should pray for us and for them. So the first thing that we see from Daniel is a right heart attitude. In verse 3, Daniel puts on sackcloth and ashes. Now, putting on sackcloth and ashes was an outward expression of what God was doing in, in your heart. It was, it was a way that God's people humbled themselves, recognizing their own weakness, their own inability to change their circumstances. They would cry out to God in repentance, trusting that he was in control. And so it demonstrated a, a dependency on God. The second thing we see is that Daniel fasts. Now, fasting is something that's demonstrated and encouraged throughout Scripture. It usually involves missing a meal or maybe missing food for a day or for a couple of days or missing a type of food or um, denying yourself something. And in that time that would be spent eating, devoting yourself intentionally to prayer. You know, fasting demonstrates a seriousness about prayer and a serious trust in God. You know, Jesus fasted for, um, for 40 days and um, after being tempted by the devil in, in Deuteronomy 8, he, he quotes Deuteronomy 8 where he says, um, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You know, as a church over the last six or 12 months, most of our calls to prayer and to fast have been to ask God to do something that we by ourselves in our own power cannot do. And that that is that God would miraculously provide what we need to rebuild El Dorado. That we would have a building and a facility that will last for years and generations to come. And that it would facilitate the mission that we believe that God has called us to. Actually, we need to continue fasting. We need to continue praying that God would do what only he can do. And so, um, I know uh, Becky mentioned it a minute ago, but if you can, get to the first Friday prayer of the month. Why don't you intentionally, uh, why don't you intentionally fast? Come and pray for our church. Pray for the churches across our nation. Pray that God would do what only he can do. The second thing we learn from Daniel is that God keeps his promises even though we break ours. In verses 4 to 6, we see that Daniel is reminding us and himself of who God is and that he is a God that keeps his covenant of love. That God keeps his promises and always fulfills the word that he has spoken to us. And this is a great way to start prayer. It's a great way to give glory to God and remind yourself of who he is and what he has done and that he ultimately is in control. Daniel is also contrasting us and God. He's, he's um, reminding us that God always keeps his promises, keeps his covenant of love, despite the fact that we don't. And again, this is amazing, isn't it? We worship a God of love and mercy and grace, that even in our worst moment, even in our deepest sin, God declares over us that he loves us and he wants us. He wants to save us. And so if you're, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, actually he wants to save you and rescue you and show you his mercy and kindness. The third thing that we see from Daniel is that God is righteous and just. Daniel says, Lord, you are righteous, yet we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We haven't listened to the prophets. To us belongs shame. Daniel recognizes the righteousness and holiness of God, that in God is no sin or wrongdoing, and that God is perfect in all of his ways. God being perfect and righteous is also just. And it would be unjust for God to leave sin unpunished. Now what we see here in Daniel 9 
is God's people living under the wrath of God, living under the punishment and penalty of their sin. Daniel says, to us belongs shame. Now, the difference here between us and Daniel is that actually God, being righteous and just, has punished sin. But instead of punishing me for my sin or punishing you for your sin, he's punished Jesus instead. When Jesus died on the cross, the wrath of God was poured out onto Jesus. He took the righteous, the righteous judgment of God and instead gives us his righteousness. He gave his life as a ransom for ours so that we could be free. And as a result, there is no shame upon us. We are unashamed because of what Christ has done. God kept his covenant of love towards us, and we see this being fulfilled in Jesus. So, just as Daniel does, we need to respond with repentance, turning to God in prayer, seeking his forgiveness, knowing and recognizing that we have got it wrong and that we haven't kept our promises, that we haven't lived the life that we should have lived. Now, this might seem an odd thing for someone like Daniel to pray, because Daniel was um, an incredible example of faithful obedience to God. Daniel did not bow to false gods or idols, even in the threat of death. Daniel, unlike our nation and some of the churches across the UK, hasn't bowed to the pressure of society. He allowed himself to be thrown into a lion's den before bowing the knee and compromising. Secondly, Daniel wouldn't have even been alive at the time that God's people were carried off into exile. He would have grown up in exile. So why doesn't Daniel pray, you know, Lord, would you forgive my father's generation? Or would you forgive the other people? But he, instead, he includes himself in this prayer. And that's because Daniel recognizes two things. One, that he is still an imperfect sinner of need of God's mercy and forgiveness. And we must all remember, no matter how well we are doing, no matter how well we feel our church is doing, we must remember that we are completely dependent on God. We are dependent on his love, his grace, his mercy, his provision, and his saving work on the cross. You know, we want to see our churches filled. We want to see people that don't know Jesus come to faith. But the reality is we can share the good news. We can, we can be Jesus to our community, but it's only him that can bring about salvation. It's only him that can change people's hearts. And we need to pray that he would. So part of our response should be to recognize that he is always faithful, even when we have fallen short. The second thing that Daniel realizes is that he and his people are in this together. And I believe that this is an important point for us to get to grips with, that we are all in this together. We need to pray for the churches across the UK, for the local Orthodox church down the road, the Methodist church, the Baptist church, you know, churches like Skinner Street. Um, a lot of you know, it's 502, we, we met at Skinner Street for a period of time. And that was a, one, a church that would have at one point maybe held 800 believers, had a kid's work of a few hundred kids, and is now uh, a small, struggling congregation. We should pray for the church that is doing well and reaching the community, for the church that is struggling, and especially the church that has compromised in this age and bowed to the pressures of society. We should rejoice together in the good things. We should cry together in the bad things. We should repent together when we see ourselves and others fall, we are in this together. We need to pray for the churches that we have connection and relationship with, churches like Glasgow Grace, people like Ian and Lindsay. We need to pray for them that God would be upon them. We need to pray for the, the advanced churches across the UK and globally as well. You know, this is why we, we send people like Ian and Lindsay, why we give financially and give resources to church plants, because we believe in the global church and we believe that we are in this together. The fourth thing that we can see from Daniel is that God is the rescuer and the redeemer. 
So in verse 15, it says, Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, the story of Exodus in Exodus 14 is an incredible story of God rescuing his people. It was one of the most significant stories in the people of God's history. And God rescued his people out of Egypt in what appear to be impossible circumstances. God rescues Israel again and again. He changes their hearts and he changes the whole culture of the land and points people back towards himself. We need to pray and remember what God has already done and we need to pray that he will do it again. The countless times that God has saved and rescued his people for his namesake from desolate circumstances. And I want to tell you that God has done this in our nation before. And I truly believe that God will do it again. And I want to tell you about 18th century England. It says England at the beginning of the 18th century was in a moral quagmire and a spiritual cesspool. Thomas Carlyle described the country's condition as stomach well alive, soul extinct. Deism was rampant and a bland philosophical morality was standard fare in the churches. Sir William Blackstone visited the church of every major clergyman in London but did not hear a single discourse which had more Christianity in it than the writings of Cicero. In most sermons he heard, it would have been impossible to tell just from listening whether the preacher was a follower of Confucius, Muhammad, or Christ. Morally, the country was becoming increasingly decadent. Drunkenness was rampant. Gambling was so extensive that one historian described England as one vast casino. Newborns were exposed in the streets. 97% of infant poor working in, houses, in workhouses died as children. Bear baiting and cockfighting were accepted sports. Tickets were sold to a public execution as to a theatre. The slave trade had brought material gain to many while further degrading their souls. Bishop Berkeley wrote that the morality and religion in Britain had collapsed to a degree that was never known in any Christian country. And so what does God do in this desolate, broken time? Actually, he raised up people like John Wesley and George Whitfield, who were said to have brought in the evangelical revival in England. George Whitfield across England and America is said to have preached 18,000 times to 10 million people within his lifetime. That would have averaged preaching about 10 times a week. He faced significant opposition and difficulty throughout his ministry. A huge part of his ministry was to preach in the open air. Crowds of thousands would come together and people would play instruments to try and drown him out. They would even set bulls into the crowds to try and injure people and scare them off. He and his followers had been attacked and beaten, but like Daniel, he didn't bow the knee to the gods of his age, but instead remained faithful to God in all things. Despite all these troubles, he continued to preach a message of salvation in Christ through grace. And as a result, many, many people came to faith in Christ. God, again in our nation in a desolate time, did an incredible work. He saved many people in our land, and he changed the culture and the landscape, and he pointed people back towards himself. We need to pray and believe that God would do that again in our nation. Okay, finally, we've seen um, how we should pray and what we should pray about. And I want to end just by talking to you about to what end do we pray. We pray and appeal to God's zeal for the glory of his own name. 
verse 17 to 19 says, Now our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. The people of God are known by his name, and God has an infinite zeal for his own name. He will not let it be reproached and made a byword indefinitely. And actually, this is our deepest confidence, that God is committed to the glory of himself. And that is how we should pray. That, is, that should be the end to which we pray. Pray that for God's own glory that he would do something incredible in our nation again and that once again we would see a sinful and lost generation repent and turn to a God of love and mercy. Okay, I'm gonna, thank you for listening. I'm going to hand over to Carlos and the team. Thank you, Matt. Um, just close your eyes um, and let's just um, think about what Matt um, was sharing with us at the moment.